From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour, starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Nandi. He's a resident analyst and contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome. Hello, everyone. Later in the broadcast, we'll be talking with Mark Eldridge. He's the county executive in Montgomery County, Maryland. But joining us now is Mike DeBonis. He's a congressional reporter for the Washington Post. Mike DeBonis, welcome. Kojo, thank you so much for having me back. I'm just delighted to be with you guys today. Good to talk to you again. Even as we speak, Tom Sherwood, the March for Life is taking place. You seem to have it under surveillance. What's going on? Well, I'm watching the cable channel, uh, EWTN. I've never heard of it before. Right now, it's a lot of people mainly talking. They haven't shown anyone on the hill. Of course, the 48th Annual March for Life is a a virtual event this year, although they were expecting some people to show up on the Capitol. Some years, a couple hundred thousand people have come. And I was just thinking, we'll get to this later, about the potential fence around the Capitol. What would a fence that shut off the entire Capitol grounds to the public due to people like the March for Life and others who want to protest there. So the March for Life is ongoing, but it's mainly at this point a uh, virtual show on cable TV. The bonus, you probably know that Sherwood hasn't slept since the whole fence thing came up, but are you covering this? Are you watching this March for Life also? Um, I'm not watching the uh, March for Life feed as Tom is. I do know that there, there is, uh, it's obviously a, every year it's a major event on Capitol Hill lots and lots of uh, uh, of, of uh, pro-life activists come to Capitol Hill. They want to talk to their elected representatives. They go into the office buildings. They set up meetings. Uh, it's a huge part of democracy in the democratic process. And I think uh, Tom is right to be concerned about uh, if there's a fence, what, is, what else, what other sort of restrictions come with that? Well, heck, we're there. So let's go there. Tom Sherwood, what are your concerns? <laughs> Oh, I don't have any concerns. No. <laughs> I will ask first, you know, Mike, the bonus, of course, is a former loose lips reporter and, and covered city politics and other matters. But I would like to ask him just on January the 6th, I went up on the east side of the Capitol to observe firsthand the demonstration and some of the rioting. I did not go inside. Just you, uh, Mike, your personal story. Were you there on January the 6th? And what did you see briefly? So I was not there. I the plan was is that well, let's I let's get another guest the, then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the plan was I was supposed to work the weight shift. I was going to come in around dinner time, and you know we were expecting this electoral count to go overnight. Um, so I was sitting at home watching it all happen on TV like everybody else. But it was I I will just say it was as harrowing knowing those hallways, knowing seeing it it unfold from afar was, I'm not going to say it was just as traumatic because it wasn't, but it was traumatic. And uh, I I know other people who weren't weren't there that day, but uh, are also denizens of the Capitol who also, you know, suffered some stress afterwards, um, just thinking about 
not only what happened, but what could have happened. And, yeah. and that's been something that's been rolling through everyone's minds uh, since then. Yeah, the, okay. as, as, coach, as coach, can we mention the fence first? Can the Capitol Hill uh, police uh, temporary chief Acting has chief. publicly raised the idea of fencing off the entire area? Uh, and that's been some significant pushback from those who don't want that to happen. You briefly mentioned it. But mm-hmm. can you get this was proposed a decade or so ago and it was shot down saying people should be able to come to the Capitol. Uh, do you have any sense that this is going to, in fact, happen this time? Defense. I think it's it's too early to tell. You're right, uh, Tom, that previous sergeants at arms, uh, Capitol Police officials have floated, you know, there needs to be a hard perimeter. Some have said you need to shut down Constitution Avenue, Independence Avenue, and really make it a, uh, you know, hardened campus. And those uh, suggestions have been pretty roundly dismissed in the past. I mean, the, the, the politicians, the members of Congress who call the shots on Capitol Hill, really do members of both parties believe that this is the people's house. This is where uh, uh, regular Americans uh, should be able to go, not only take a tour, but also go and uh, lobby their congresspeople, go to their offices, get meetings, and have that happen with as little friction as possible. And, you know, that attitude has survived even through 9-11, even through Oklahoma City, all of these uh, sort of signal occurrence, you know, occurrences that have led to lockdowns in other parts of the city, Capitol Hill has not followed. Um, we will Good. see what happens now. And this has all resulted in, of course, the House impeaching the president or former president Trump, making him the only president to be impeached twice. The trial now is set to begin on February 9th. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland is the lead impeachment manager for the House. But Mike DeBonis, what is your sense about what's going to happen in the Senate? We all know that Jamie Raskin is a terrific lawyer and um, he's accompanied by other members of Congress who are lawyers. But what's going to happen in the Senate? Two-thirds of the Senate would need to vote to convict President Trump. What's your sense of what's going to happen, Mike? So we got a pretty good hint on Tuesday uh, when uh, they actually swore in the senators for the trial. And, you know, that had barely happened when Senator Rand Paul, a Kentucky Republican, got up and he made a constitutional objection, a point of order, saying, you know, it's, it's unconstitutional to even think about trying an ex-president for impeachment. Um, I think this, this basically what he was saying is I don't think this should go forward on that, those grounds. And he forced a vote on that. The vote was 55-45. 45 of 50 Republicans backed Rand Paul and backed President Trump on this very basic threshold question of is this trial even constitutional? Uh, people like us Uh, reporters see that and say, if you voted today to say that this trial isn't even constitutional, how do you in two, three, four weeks come back and vote for conviction of President Trump on something that you think is unconstitutional? And it's it's not going to happen. And that's and that's why we took that vote as a test vote, as a proxy for, you know, how this is going to go. They are at least 12 votes short of what they need to get a conviction. And the, uh, I, we know that Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, a uh, Democrat, has proposed a censor uh, of the former president as a rule. But I want to uh, go back to the Jamie Raskin, uh, the congressman from uh, 
Maryland is only in his third term. He's fairly new onto Capitol Hill in the way that uh, it works by seniority. But yet he is in this uh, extraordinary role of leading the, uh, the impeachment team from the House to present the case. And, of course, he also had a terrible uh, personal blow in December when his 25-year-old son, Tommy, uh, committed suicide. He has focused on this like a laser beam. How is it that Jamie Raskin, even though he is a constitutional scholar from American University, how is it that he got such a lead role, and uh, what do you see for him going forward? Yeah, so, Tom, I, you know, that, that's a great observation. He is fairly junior uh, in, in the House ranks, but... Um, anybody who knows Jamie Raskin knows that he's a guy of uh, boundless energy. Uh, he makes an impression on people. He's uh, incredibly smart, um, and he is incredibly uh, nice about it. He has this sort of happy warrior vibe that uh, is very infectious, and it's very um, he's a very engaging person to talk to. And I think that he made he has made an impression in his short time in Congress as somebody who's both brilliant and engaging and uh, is able to sort of carry an argument um, as well uh, as, as anybody in the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, he was elected to a leadership position in his second term. as a, a So he was at the table with Nancy Pelosi and the House Democratic leaders in the last Congress as they were discussing the impeachment of uh, President Trump. Um, he's on the House Judiciary Committee. I think that he's pretty widely respected as somebody, uh, a former constitutional law professor, who knows the issues, who knows uh, the, the the constitutional basis for impeachment. I think that it wasn't a huge surprise uh, to, to see him playing, taking a very prominent role in this. I, and uh, what was a huge surprise, obviously, as you mentioned, is just, you know this is happening just weeks after this just devastating personal tragedy that just. Uh, is I'm not only I'm sure left uh, Congressman Raskin reeling, but just people around him knowing, uh, knowing him and knowing his family. Um, I think it, there's just been a, a lot of bipartisan uh, concern on his behalf. Um, but he he really has seemed to have thrown himself into it. Um, you know, obviously, just days after this, the the you know the riot happens, and he is there on the floor that night uh, arguing for the certification of the election and the, you know, upholding of the Constitution. It was a pretty, uh, no matter what your politics were on this, it was a pretty inspiring moment. Let me just say, we, we did, I know the producers did ask Congressman Raskin if he would be on our show today to discuss what he's doing, and he, he, he begged off saying that he's so busy with preparing the impeachment, so that's why we settled for you. <laughs> Understood. He's and and I, I can vouch that he's uh, a lot scarcer than he usually is. He's, uh, uh, he's yeah. obviously got a lot of work to do before the trial starts next week. Uh, can you tell us um, about the censure resolution that uh, Senator Tim Kaine came up with? What would that do? And we only have about a minute left, Mike. Sure. So Tim Kaine has has said he looked at the vote Tuesday and said, "Listen, we're not going to get a conviction. What else can we do to have some accountability for President Trump?" He's drafting. He's working with some of his uh, Republican friends. Susan Collins' name is attached to it of Maine. Um, but the, the, there's sort of an issue here, which is that Tim Kaine is purporting to use this Constitution, this 14th Amendment uh, language that would, you know, bar potentially bar Trump from office in the future. It's kind of an arcane constitutional provision 
the problem he's going to run into is if it's seen as just another way of doing impeachment, it's not going to get any additional Republican support. And there's just also the feeling in the in the in the Republican caucus that the Democrats have made their choice. They've impeached him. And that's what we're going to decide on. The, the ship has sailed on censure. So uh, it's not at all clear that that's really going to emerge as a workable alternative. But Tim, Tim Kaine is giving it a try. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Mike DeBonis, can you stick around for about another three minutes? Because I need to talk D.C. statehood briefly with you. Can you? Happily. Happily. Okay. In that case, we're going to take a short break when we come back. Before we speak with County Executive Mark Elrich of Montgomery County, just a few more minutes with Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. I'm Kojo Nandi. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Welcome back. We'll soon be talking with Mark Elrich, the county executive in Montgomery County. Right now, our resident analyst, Tom Sherwood, and I are talking with Mike DeBonis, who's a congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Mike, uh, the H.R. 51 in the House for D.C. statehood has over 200 co-sponsors, and Senate Democrats reintroduced the statehood bill this week with a record 38 co-sponsors. But what real chance does it have in the Senate? It'll sail through the House, of course. Yeah, it's likely to get a vote in the House. It's likely to pass in the Senate. It's it's tough. Uh, in in the, the fact is, as long as the filibuster exists in its current uh, incarnation, where you need 60 votes to to move legislation uh, of consequence, um, you know, statehood is not going to move. Uh, there is a push, as you may be aware of, to to get rid of the filibuster and use that, among other things, to make DC a state. But uh, there are a number of Democratic senators who are on the record opposed to changing the filibuster, eliminating it entirely. Uh, most prominently, Joe Manchin of uh, uh, West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. I think there's a couple others that would, would have some issues with it that just simply make it um, a tough sell right now. And uh, But I know that uh, there's lots of activists out there working on it. And I will say this, that... This issue has moved up the sort of Democratic priority list in the last 12 years from when President Obama was first in office uh, and he was asked about it. You know, he said this was too divisive an issue. There is much more unity inside the Democratic ranks that D.C. statehood is a top level issue to accomplish if they have the ability to do so in Congress. So, you know, there has been a lot of progress. Yes, but it's just. But I would. The, the concern is whether or not the, they would set aside the filibuster for this. There's talk about doing it for reconciliation on the big uh, COVID relief bill and other matters. It just seems like a very big hurdle. I'm a personal uh, DC resident. I'm for statehood as a person, but as a reporter, it's very hard to draw a line to success. 
And, and we, I don't see anything happening with retrocession to Maryland. I'm, I'm getting lots of tweets today about people who still want to retrocede D.C. to Maryland. Maryland would have to prove that that's more dead in the water than D.C. statehood. Would you agree? I would agree wholeheartedly. I think I think you're right that the you know the filibuster wouldn't go for D.C. statehood, but there are other matters on the Democratic agenda where you could see there being uh, a push to eliminate the filibuster, and then behind that, D.C. statehood could move forward. But listen, we're in a 50-50 Senate. There is no margin for error. You can't lose any votes. You need every Democrat on board, as long as Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. Some of these other, you know, purple state Democrats are out there. Um, it's tough, and yep. uh, you know, if you were in more of a fifty-five, forty-five Senate, then you, you, you could see it a lot more clearly than you can now. Thank Mark Elrich, he's a congressional reporter for the Washington Post. That's Mike DeBonis, <laughs> Mike DeBonis, always. <laughs> I was moving. I was moving ahead of you, Mike. Mike DeBonis, always a pleasure. Thank you, Kojo, and as, as a point of personal privilege, congratulations on your retirement. Well-deserved, and uh, I'm sorry that Tom is, is roping you into keeping on the, uh, doing the politics. Out <laughs> you know how that goes. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, Mark Elrich is the county executive in Montgomery County. He joins us now. Mark Elrich, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh is the county executive on? Can you hear me, Mr. Yes, Elrich? Oh, good. I am. I don't know what happened. Good. I got bounced for a moment. Well, there are, there are a bunch of people waiting to talk to you who have called already. Mr. County Executive, there's one word on everybody's mind right now. Vaccine. So let's start there. Yep. Who Who is eligible to receive the coronavirus vaccine <clears throat> in Montgomery County? And how many people have received it so far? Wow. So eligible and in line are two very different things. I mean, the, the, the governor has made a very large swath of people eligible. On the other hand, he's told us that, you know, our, our priorities are pretty much the priorities that were laid out in the original, um, in the original guidelines, which is we, we were going through what's called Group 1A, and that's like the front-facing workers, the hospital folks, the medical professionals, um, people who we actually need to stay healthy long enough to take care of us as we go through this. The second group was um, 1B, which is the 75-plus-year-olds. Uh, we are finishing in the county um, 1A, and we are starting 1B and giving out vaccines. But all of that only applies to the county health health department. There's a lot of other vaccine going to... Um, hospitals and to pharmacies and other providers, and they are scheduling people everywhere from 1A to 1C. And so there are two different systems going on. The, the fundamental problem is that, I guess two fundamental problems. One is if the state wants us to get through the seniors, the 75 plus, if I only get 5,000 doses a week, it's gonna take me 14 weeks. If the 18 to 20,000 doses that are coming to the county are directed, if the state directs all of the providers to focus on the senior group, we would be finished with the senior group in about three and a half weeks or so, maybe a little bit less. Um, then we would turn to the 65-year-olds. 
Um, but there is a sequence, and the governor has said, I talked to him personally, that you know we're supposed to go through the different steps and complete them. The county hasn't been able to complete them because the amount of doses that come to Montgomery County isn't adequate. Like I said, this last week we got dropped to about 5,500 doses of for, for first doses. So it's complex. And so when I met with the governor, one of the things we asked for is to have a uniform scheduling system so that people couldn't go in and register and then register in the system and then select a Montgomery County Health Clinic site if they're 65 years old and register there for a vaccine because they're taking, that would be taking away vaccines from people who are 75 years old and older. Um, well, so it's a, we've, got a, we've got a problem in the software. Let me, let, uh, uh, Mr. County Executive, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. You don't have the best relationship with the, with the Republican Governor Hogan. And two weeks ago, you were part of a statewide uh, virtual rally with county and business and community leaders urging him to release more uh, emergency rainy day fund money for a variety of reasons. But you also, as I understand it, had a Zoom meeting with Governor Hogan this week that you haven't put out a press release on. I think you were just referring to that meeting. Did you, we'll get to 495 and 270 in a moment, but it, it, did you have a good conversation with him? What was the character, how would you characterize that conversation? Am I right that you did it this week? Yeah, but we had a really good conversation and I think people don't understand, and the governor and I both laughed about this. There are things we disagree about. But you can disagree about things and not have a bad relationship. So, Tell the his, governor that with his uh, leadership in the uh, Maryland House and Senate. It's pretty testy. <laughs> so, look, you know, you can, like, you know I, don't, I don't care about testy. I look at how you work with people. And so we've been able to work with the governor's staff on a bunch of our priorities, whether it was housing, whether it was some other transportation priorities we've had. Uh, we have not had a problem, despite the fact that he and I may disagree on some things. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've felt pretty comfortable with. And I think people, you know, get confused when you see, you know, both of us taking different positions. There's an assumption that you don't work together. And the fact is, we do work together. And so our conversation this week was very positive when... Uh, when I raised the issue, you know, about the order in which vaccines are going, he actually said, you all should probably be still in group 1A because you have the largest 1A group in the county, if not the country, and those folks have to be vaccinated. If you look at his directives and the health department directives, on the one hand, you hear, you hear this kind of sweeping statement of everybody who's eligible. But if you look at the directives, the directives have said for weeks, you have to prioritize the 75-year-old plus group. So okay. well, this, I worked okay. my part way of the through problem. that. Well, that's part we, of the problem. There's 1A, there's 1B, there's 1D, there's 1C. There's just so many things that confuse us. Yes. Do you agree with the government well, that schools well, should be well, open? Allow me to interrupt because we have to take a short break. Oh, okay. I am, I am glad the county executive had a very good conversation with the governor. We've been trying to have any kind of conversation with him for years, even a bad one, and can't get it. So you might want to point that out the next time. I'm Coach Anand.
Welcome back. We're talking with Mark Eldridge. He's the county executive in Montgomery County, Maryland. And Tom Shorewood, we've been talking about vaccinations. Is it possible that Northern Virginia might be getting a vaccination super site? Several super sites, several members of Congress have written a letter to the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency asking for that. Well, this is part of President Biden's effort to get more vaccines uh, out to more people, shots in the arm. And uh, one of the proposals is to have uh, these 100 community sites around the country, something like a big box superstore place where people could go and get vaccinations. I'm calling it Vaccinations R Us. And it would be a very good thing to do. Uh, Congressman's, uh, Congressman Jerry Connolly, Don Beyer, and Jennifer Wexton um, wrote a letter to, to the Federal Emergency Management Agency urging them to pick Northern Virginia as a place uh, for this. Again, this is an effort to roll out the vaccines. You know, a year ago, there was all these problems with testing. It took several months to get testing organized. And now there are all these problems with getting vaccines out to people. And this is an effort to do that. And I would suspect you'd want a community spot in Montgomery County or Prince George's County, too. I was about to ask Mark Elridge that. Would you like a super site in Montgomery County? Um, at the point when there are enough vaccines to use a super site, that would be nice. But right now, the state is only getting seventy to 75,000 vaccines a week. That is it. That's all. And they and don't control it because they are getting it from the federal allocation, which they have no control over. The county winds up for all of our providers with a total of about 20,000, 18 to 20,000. That's not going to change for weeks. We have no problem. My health department alone, through a variety of different sites, could put out 20, 25,000 vaccines a week minimum if we had the vaccines. And that doesn't even include our other partners like the hospitals, like the work we're doing with um, Johns Hopkins and Holy Cross. So I would just like to have the vaccines and then figure out what's the best way to get them out. You can give me a super site, but if I don't have vaccines, it doesn't make any difference right now. A lot of people want to talk about this. By the way, have you yourself been vaccinated yet? No, I've made a promise that I'm not going to get vaccinated until all of the people who would normally appear ahead of me in line have been vaccinated. So I'm not a frontline worker who does health care, so I'm not going to get vaccinated in front of them. I'm not going to get vaccinated in front of 75-year-olds. I know how to stay safe. I don't go out without a mask. I don't go to, you know, um, into closed spaces with lots of people. Occasionally, I've been in a room with a couple of people, but I don't do anything to put myself at risk. So I don't need the vaccine now, and there are people who are much more important to Montgomery County than me who need to get vaccinated. So I'll here, wait. Here now is Christian in Potomac, Maryland. Christian, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you so much, Gojo. Um, council Member Elric, Bullis School has been open for... He's no longer a council member. He's the county executive these days. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. <laughs> county Executive Elric. Bullis has been open for safe in-person learning on campus since early September, and 28 out of 29 Montgomery County independent schools have been educating safely on campus since early October. These schools have over 3,000 employees working in person on these campuses, educating many thousands of Montgomery County students. Why are independent school teachers and staff not receiving equal consideration as the, M the Montgomery County public school staff with the vaccinations that you've organized through Johns Hopkins? Mark Elwich? 
Uh, we organize it through Hopkins, but we're filing, we're following state guidelines. If the state tells us that everybody is in, that everybody will get scheduled, but that's not what the state is telling us. And I don't even do the scheduling at Johns Hopkins. They do their own scheduling. And it's one of the issues that, you know, that I've had concern with is that, um, only right now, the only pre people really following the governor's directives right now has been the county. I was on a call with other county executives yesterday, and we've got the same problem. We are trying to follow the governor's order of doing things. Um, he has not required the other private providers to follow the same uh, priorities in his order. It's a problem. But we're not setting the hospital. Uh, we're not telling the hospital what to do. We can't. And they receive their vaccine from the state, not from Montgomery County. Here now is an anonymous scholar in Potomac who identifies as a public school teacher. Uh, go ahead, please. You're on the air. Thank you so much. I am a public school teacher in a neighborhood, uh, Montgomery County Elementary School, and I work with special ed services with, teach with students in kindergarten and first. So it's a good thing that our kids are on the first kind of cohort to go back because these are really the kids who do need the in-person education. But to piggyback on what the last caller said, the vaccine situation is abhorrent. MCPS claimed to their teachers that they would be getting us vaccines. Some teachers received an invitation. It was supposed to be done in order of return to the building. I'm amongst the first who will return. I did not receive an invitation. So I emailed employee services and got this lovely response. Not everyone will receive an invitation. The invitations have been sent. If you didn't get one, we suggest you get a vaccine through the county. So I just really want to <laughs> highlight how MCPS is not taking care of anybody. Oh, God. I look, I'm, I'm only laughing I mean, because... I was flabber if, I know, because I, you have to laugh. Because the, the tone, the tenure is just a disrespect. I've been working for MCPS since the 1980s. Ooh. And I have yet to feel respected as a teacher. Here's, here's County Executive Ellis. So, look, we were told, and, and I saw this communication, that the county had a list of which teachers were coming back first. And they are the ones who are supposed to be on the list to get vaccinated. So I would, you know, you could look at it as if, you're, if you weren't on that list, you may not be coming back first. Then everybody's not coming back. This is a smaller cohort of the entire um, uh, workforce in the school system. So, um, and if you registered on the county side, you could register, but we're actually, we're turning away people who aren't in the 75 plus group because I've got to get my limited doses of vaccine out to the 75 year olds to, you know, put it in perspective, it would be 14 weeks at 5,000 vaccines a week for me to cover the 75-year-olds. That's not much of a priority, which is why we've asked the governor to direct everybody to vaccinate every all the different groups in the order in which they're prioritized. So the teachers should come. The ones going back to work first will come. How the governor decides to deal with private schools is something that, you know, we don't make a decision to which who we're going to vaccinate or not, except by what his guidelines are. So Ms. we're Dallas, working on it. Can I yeah. interrupt just on that? Just to be clear, public school teachers have priority over private school teachers, even though private schools are more heavily attended now. Um, I would have to look at that, but it may be that that's the governor's priority in opening up the the public schools, which a affect a lot more people. 
um, often include populations that are much higher at risk than the prior than the private schools. We have high density, low income communities where those kids are going to be coming back to school. Those communities coincide with areas with the highest degree of COVID infection. We've got a rage, you know, we've got a major racial equity right. problem in the virus, and this would allow us to feel safer about. Um, the teachers who are going to be working in those environments to make sure they're not as exposed. Again, that's a, the racial equity issue is true in virtually every jurisdiction in the country where there's racial diversity. There's not racial equality. Thank yes. you very much. No, I'll have a, <laughs> yes, in fact, uh, 20% of Montgomery County residents are black or African-American, but they make up only 6% of pre-registrants for the right. vaccine. Latino community following similar trends. So that is what the county executive was talking about. Tom Sherwood, you wanted to move on? Well, I just wanted to ask about an environmental question. Uh, uh, I know that the county passed an herbicide ban that significantly affects how people can put uh, herbicides on their lawns and other commercial spaces. But you also have done a major, like, 700-page report on environmental spaces. But you, as an environmentalist, you call yourself one, and I think properly so, You've opposed putting solar panels in the county's big agricultural reserve, which seems like a normal, a natural place to put them for. Uh, why are you opposed to that? I'm not opposed to it. You know, I supported, oh. you know, I supported protecting what, the what most is, productive soils, but I would completely support it opening up uh, the group three soils to this, which gets them more than 40,000 acres to put down the 1,800 acres I, of, that they think they might use for solar. I don't have a problem with that amount of solar going into the ag reserve if it can be done right. I, you know, they argued that using conditional use would be terrible. Uh, we we brought in somebody from the hearing examiner's office that does this and says that okay. you know almost nothing goes to court. It's, there's one case that wound up in okay. court in in years. So, I think it's going to happen. Um, all right, well, then I'm, that, I'm let's happy. move on then. Then the critic was maybe overstated. Can okay. we go to the 495? Wait, not yet, not yet. Here's, okay. here's Zach in Silver Spring. Zach, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, I was just wondering with every other uh, place in the DMV open for indoor dining, if there was any chance of re-looking at the numbers as far as indoor dining goes. Anytime soon with a lot of people out of work and businesses closing, that was a possibility. Montgomery County, of course, is yeah. the only county in the state of Maryland that has not allowed indoor dining again. Uh, Mr. County Executive. Uh, you know, if you listen to what Fauci said the other day, once again, um, he would not have us go into bars and restaurants right now. Our, our cases right now are multiples of what they were in the summer, and they're higher than they were when everything was shut down in the state. Uh, our positivity rate is still more than twice as high as we had gotten it down to in the summer. We are, in, in the, when the governor talks about uh, where counties are in terms of the virus, we are still in the red, we are among the red counties, and red being a bad number here, um, or a bad color in this case. So we don't feel that it's the right thing to do. And every, if we open up more stuff, it's going to increase community spread. There is absolutely no way you can open up more things for people to do and not increase the community spread. And if you're trying to get kids back to school, which is another thing that's largely being ignored by, by a lot of people, 
You're supposed to be in a period of low transmission. Everybody, including Fauci, says kids should go back to school. But it's always caveated with the statement that you should have low rates of transmission. We don't have low rates of transmission. And so opening up more stuff guarantees that my rates of transmission are not going to go down as fast as they should, which makes it a more dangerous thing to do. You can't do everything and not expect this virus to continue to flourish. And we're so far away from getting vaccines to everybody. And it's nobody's fault except the former president. I mean, he had the opportunity to buy more and he passed on buying it. Once he passed on buying it, that stuff got sold to someplace else. I don't blame the governor. I don't blame, you know, Biden, you know, and and that horse is, you know, where train has left the station. But we're not going to see enough vaccines to broadly vaccinate the population at least for a few months. And I've told people, you know, we're 11 months into this. It's like we need to be patient a little bit longer to get enough vaccine out there that it's safe to start doing things Well, again. did you tell Governor Hogan that he wants to open up by March 1st? You had a personal conversation with him. He's threatening right. legal action. Well, I don't think he's going to do legal action. And, you know, I don't think there's legal action to do. He's he's upset. Where This is partly why the vaccine, you know, Hopkins is working to get the vaccines out to the group of teachers that MCPS is going to bring back. <clears throat> this will, you know, it'll help the teachers. I hope that everybody's right about the low transmission rates among kids. We do worry about, you know, particularly in communities where the virus is highly prevalent. It is, you know, it is very different in different communities in Montgomery County. That is just flat out true. Well, the Maryland Department of Transportation selected the design it would like to use for the (laughs) I-495 and the I-270 Beltway expansion. The plan would add four managed lanes, two in each direction, that would be toll-free for vehicles with three people. Cars with one or two people would pay a toll, depending on the traffic volume. MDOT says it should save the average commuter 73 hours of travel time each year. And so, Tom Sherwood, what is your question about that? Well, I want to ask that, but I just I want to be clear on the politics hour. Have you announced yet for re-election? I assume you are, but have you done it yet? I haven't announced it, but you should, you should assume okay. I am. Yeah, I, yeah, I do assume that. Uh, anyway, the, um, the, the, the governor this week, the governor that you're apparently such good friends with on issues, even though you disagree, uh, uh, dropped his plan after a couple of years of discussions and back and forth and all of that. He just threw it out there this week of what he wanted to do with these additional lanes. In that private conversation, did he tell you what he was doing? Now, I had 15 minutes to talk about COVID and 15 minutes to talk about another project I'm working on. So I didn't have any time. Ooh, what's to that? Talk. Uh, what's that other project? It's related to a development opportunity in Montgomery County that I want okay. the state to assist with. And right. that was also a good conversation. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, okay. I got to say on the, on the lanes, this is the place where I, I think uh, four, two lanes, which is four lanes total, is two lanes too many. Um, I've advocated for years, and the council took this position some years ago, that we would support two reversible lanes on I-270. Anybody who's driven that godforsaken road at rush hour in the wrong direction knows that southbound in the morning is terrible. Northbound, which I drive every day when I go into work, um, is not bad. On the other hand, southbound in the evening isn't so bad, but northbound in the evening is a disaster. So I need two reversible lanes. 
no matter what you do, you have to take out the, the bridges and rebuild them because the bridges have abutments that separate the service lanes from the main lanes and then go down and then support the bridge in the middle about American of the Legion. road. You're talking about American yeah. Legion. No, I'm talking about all the bridges that cross over. Um, oh, okay. So the, the abutments have to come out anyway. So if you're going to take out the abutments, you should be able to put in two reversible lanes. Virginia does this on 95. It works. And if I was somebody in the business community or the building community bidding on this, I'm going to look at this and say I'm going to build four lanes. I'm going to get revenues southbound on the morning. Nobody's going to pay to ride a lane that doesn't that's no faster than what the regular lanes are. And in the evening, you're going to you're going to collect revenues on northbound lanes and probably nothing on the southbound lanes. So they really need to build what they need to solve the problem. Two reversible lanes allowing high occupancy vehicles and transit buses would solve the problem. And, you know, the governor, I am, well, excuse me. Yeah, excuse I'm all in me, favor gov- of doing that. Okay, the governor says he'll start with the rebuilding the American Legion Bridge. What kind of timeline are we looking at? In terms, if we start with the American Legion Bridge and then do the... 495 lanes and then the 270 lanes. Are we looking at a 10-year project? I don't. I don't think it's 10 years. I. Th- I think. Um, I think you can do these things. Um, you don't need to do it sequentially. You can. There are different parts you can start moving at the same time. But I totally agree with the American Legion Bridge. I raised that. You know, the first meeting I was at in December. The year I got elected, I was in a big uh, public forum, and the governor had spoken about what he was doing. And I said, if we were serious, we'd start at the American Legion Bridge because you start at the bottleneck. Everything backs up from there. So there I'm thrilled that's where we're going to start. Okay. Is, is there any indication that this pandemic is going to change work life, that so many people will not be commuting? They may be working from home or more regional centers, and there won't be as much commuter traffic. Is that part of the planning? But unfortunately, it's not part of the planning board's planning, and it's not part of anybody's planning, and a lot of it's, you know, it's still highly speculative. Yes. I, I know anecdotally, a bunch of businesses have told their um, their landlords that they will either not be coming back or they will be shrinking their footprints. And, you know, the stories abound in the Washington Business Journal pretty regularly about companies that have decided they're going to stay mostly virtual and maybe satellite some people. Which means, you know, put them in an office, but the offices might not be in the downtown. They might be somewhere else in the DMV. Um, I, I am not at all confident that, um, but confidence is probably the wrong word. I'm not at all a believer that everybody's going back to work. And I think there's a chance that the number of people commuting um, will shrink. And honestly, there's no reason not to, even though it's antithetical to the interests of trying to build more buildings and getting more property tax base. If I was a tenant and I could have my people working from home rather than renting space in a building, I would have my people working at home. The county, we went, we teleworked an enormous number of our people. When I came in, we had the best teleworking policy probably in the region. We had the worst application of the teleworking policy because nobody could really telework. When COVID hit, we got extraordinarily high levels of teleworking and we've kind of looking at this and thinking, we don't need to bring everybody back. People want to come back. They want some human contact. So we're thinking about split weeks where you share an office and somebody's on a couple of days one week and three days the next week and then reverse it. 
but we're going to come up with a hybrid and we're going to use less space. And I suspect other people are going to do the same thing. If you're a business uh, I got person. A, I got a, got a couple of more, I got a couple sure. of more COVID questions. Here is Katie in Kennington, Maryland. Katie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you. My name is Katie Preble. I'm president of the Academy of the Holy Cross in Kensington. And I'd like to ask our county executive to respectfully answer the question as why our 29 schools who have been open and serve over 10,000 students and employ over 3,000 adults were not included. The Montgomery County Public School website says there is a partnership with Hopkins. And uh, Mr. Ehrlich, you are quoted as saying, we are excited about this partnership. The governor has not made a distinction between public and independent schools in placing us in order of receiving the vaccine. So we would ask why we were not given the same consideration to be part of this partnership. I'm sure the partnership and the schools could approach the hospitals about how the hospitals want to distribute their vaccines. We don't dictate to the hospitals. Everything the hospitals do are hospital decisions. We got asked, you know, we didn't get asked. The school system said they would provide a list of teachers who were coming back, which they did. And that list is available to the hospital, the one hospital we have a partnership with. And that's where it sits right now. If other people want to establish partnerships, they can. But Montgomery County's vaccine, and this is not my vaccine. This is vaccine that was given by the state to the hospital. Montgomery County vaccine is going to be pretty much relegated to finishing our 1A group and finishing the seniors from 75 plus. This is one of the problems of having a, a scheduling system that isn't where you cannot differentiate by age or in this case by well, allow me to Allow me to interrupt, Mr. County Executive, because what Katie is concerned about is whether or not the agreement uh, that exists includes private schools. You keep saying MCPS, and that suggests that independent and private schools are not a part of this. It's, it's hard to call it an agreement because it's not my vaccine. Vaccine. The school systems have said they wanted to get vaccinated. These are the people they're bringing back. Okay. This is what the hospital agreed to do. I gotcha. don't know what the hospital would do if the association for the for the non for, for the private schools went to them and said these are our employees. Will you vaccinate them? But I okay. can't make anybody vaccinate anyone except for my own clinics, and we're only doing seventy-five year olds and the one A group right now. Tom Sherwood. Uh, well, let's very quickly. We don't have much time left. <clears throat> the uh, redistricting has to occur. The, the, the voters of Montgomery County voted to expand the size of the Montgomery County Council with additional, I think, two districts. Are you, as the leader of the county, going to be involved in the redistricting, or is that simply left to the council? It's left to neither of us, fortunately. It's <laughs> ultimately, oh, you know, really? there's, a, there's a citizens group that oh, will oh, make yes, recommendations. Oh, commission on redistricting. Yeah. Right. Well, so you're just going to accept what they recommend without any change by the council? I should, tell, I should tell our listeners that the county council has selected 11 residents right. to be on its redistricting commission to redraw districts following the 2020 census. Yeah. So I have and no they way have of to report, And they have to report by November 15th of this year. Yeah. I understand that, but are, you're going to be involved. This is a political decision. It's not a good government citizen decision. And you it have less a, than a minute to be respond. A good government, it better be a good government citizen decision. Uh, I don't like gerrymandering. I do not want to see gerrymandering. I want to see the rules for equitable distribution of, uh, of votes and respect for community lines 
it, you know, continued here. I expect that to happen. I think the last time we yeah. did it, we did a pretty good job. I don't want to district some people in and some people out based on political stuff. Well, we'll I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that's about <laughs> all the time we have. Mark Elrich is the county executive in Montgomery County, Maryland. He's a Democrat. Uh, Mark Elrich, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Hey, Kojo, I'm going to miss you. You know, you've been a real fixture. And, oh, uh, here we go. And so no. it's true, you know. <laughs> well, well, Tom and I will still be corralling you on Fridays from time to time because we're going to keep doing the politics out. Oh, really? Oh, so, good. yes. Yeah. So you'll be around. He's just going to be on vacation Monday to Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the time we have. The Politics Hour was produced by Sidney Grannon. Coming up Monday, we'll discuss the vaccine rollout in the DMV with Montgomery County's top health officer, Dr. Travis Gales. A lot of people who call today will want to call again then. And we'll have the Washington Post, Julie Zosmer. She will join oh, us to great. discuss what's working and what's not. Then Kojo for Kids kicks off Black History Month with Shani Mahiri King, the author of Have I Ever Told You Black Lives Matter? That all starts at Monday at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Any plans, Tom Show? I'm, I'm going to go check out the March for Life in a few moments. Well, I'm planning to stay safe. Thank you for listening. I'm Kojo Nam. Kojo Nambi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sidney Grannon, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstor. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.